in our Wednesday night discussion, and I apologize that I did not give you a heads up on where we were going last week. Um, so we are moving to 1 Peter tonight. So that's where I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, a completely new area, uh, a new author, a, a wonderful consideration for us. I know that uh, many are very familiar with this letter. It has been studied in some of our Sunday school class in the fairly recent past. And, and many of you understand the impact of it. And, and it is such a great place for us to come and to understand all that's going on in this world in which we live. Because this is a perfect place for us to focus and realize the challenges that are going on in our lives. Because we all have them in various arenas. And Peter gives us a perfect understanding of how to recognize, how to respond, and how to grow even in these difficult times. You know, Philippians was a great blessing, and, and I have no doubt that First Peter is going to be as well. As Peter writes this epistle, he does so to address the issue of suffering. And our first reaction to suffering might be negative. It might be uh, a withdrawal. It might be a desire to move away from and to, to not go towards it, because no one wants to go through suffering. It's not something that we desire. It is not something that we see initially as positive because from a human mindset, it's not positive. And that's exactly why we need to look at 1 Peter because it is that human mindset that is completely contrary to God's mindset of how we are to understand this. Because suffering is a very positive notion in Scripture. Think of all the different ways that we see suffering reflected in such a positive way in Scripture. We see that Jesus' coming to earth was to endure suffering, and such as is revealed for us by our Lord in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. Mark 8 and, and 31 reads, And he began to teach them, here we are about uh, halfway through the Lord's ministry chronologically in Mark 8, 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The suffering that the Lord went through is that which brings us life. It's what brings us together tonight. It's what brings us joy and helps us to understand all of the things in the world that we lived and it wasn't just the Lord, so also his servants. Paul suffered greatly. And we see that just a, a few books back in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. 2 Timothy 1 and 12, Paul writes, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. There is the, the right biblical approach to suffering. He, he says, this is the reason that I also suffer, but I'm not ashamed. You see, sometimes we feel like when we go through difficult times, when things are not going our way, when there are 
our financial or spiritual or relational problems, that we can start to feel like we're ashamed and we can start to feel like we need to withdraw and pull back. But Paul says just the opposite. Rather, he says that it is whatever this suffering is, that it is a reminder that I am able to be confident in him whom I've believed in. And that he is going to carry me through those, that he is faithful, and that all the things that I've entrusted to him until the last day, he is going to accomplish. So there is a, a, great, a great accomplishment that Paul says is going to come from his suffering. And it isn't just his suffering that he brings to our attention, but he also tells young Timothy that he is also needing to be expecting to suffer. And he says so in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3. And he commands Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So part of our suffering is our role as being a servant and a soldier of the Lord. We have been enlisted into the Lord's army. And part of that service is suffering. So we're commanded to endure it as is Timothy. And not just Timothy, even the author of this wonderful epistle, 1 Peter. He got a little lesson on suffering that the, that the apostle John tells us about at the end of his gospel, doesn't he? John chapter 21, as a matter of fact. John 21 in verses 18 and 19, after the Lord has thrice rebuked Peter and called him to feed his sheep, verse 18 of John 21 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourselves and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. What does that mean? Well, verse 19 tells us, Now this he said, signifying but what, by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. His same response that he gave him in that thrice-repeated rebuke, he says again, follow me. And he will say yet one more time to Peter, follow me, even in suffering. Even in suffering, which is going to require your hands to be stretched out. And Josephus and other tradition tells us that Peter was crucified, as well as his Lord, but feeling unwilling to allow that to happen and unworthy that he was crucified upside down. So Peter knew suffering. And beloved, we are even to rejoice in suffering. Not just endure it, not just go through it. And we've even, we've seen some of this as we went through our last section of scripture in Hebrews, but we see it also in the wonderful book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24 tells us, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. As we suffer, we are to suffer in joy and recognize that in doing so, we are filling up in that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Does that mean that Christ's suffering on the cross wasn't adequate? Of course not. 
What it means is that we are continue to show the glory of Christ in our participation with his sufferings and doing so in the same manner as he did. And we're going to see an incredible example of what that looks like throughout the next five chapters. And because of this idea of suffering, I've titled our message for this evening, An Introduction to Suffering. An Introduction to Suffering. Let's take a look at our first couple verses, and then we'll come back and discuss them. First Peter 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. As we look at an introduction to suffering, I've titled our first point for this evening, The Author. The Author in the first part of verse 1. And our author is Peter. Now, some have contested this, but the arguments that make, of those that make such uh, an accusation have little substance to them and certainly don't bear our time to look into them. Peter identifies himself in this text as the author. He is the author, and he talks about he is the one who is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, of course, this would mean that he was one who was sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. One who was of the 12 apostles who were with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. And that word apostle means one who is sent. The word indicates one who is sent as a representative of the one who sends him and also can act as the authority and also the legally binding representative in manners for which he discusses. So when we talk about apostles, we talk about one who spent their life with Jesus Christ, therein fully knowing his ministry, was sent by Jesus Christ, and has the authority and the ability to bind legally those things he proclaims regarding Christ. So when we hear of the Pentecostal church today, and they talk about having apostles and prophets and all these other things, they are not apostles. Because they do not meet the definition of the word apostle. They do not have the authority, regardless of what they think or say, or whether they bind Satan in every prayer or not. That is not to be done we see Jude himself not making a reviling accusation against the enemies that he had and the ministers for Satan, but rather letting the Lord rebuke him. So these that proclaim that they are apostles, absolutely are not. So as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he was sent by the Lord as his emissary. And not what only was he the Lord's emissary, but he had a special role among the twelve. You realize that when we think of the twelve, that they are broken up into three groups always in Scripture. They are identified, each of the twelve apostles, in three groups of four men. Always in those groups. And that amongst those 
three groups of four men. If I didn't say that right, let's correct that. Three groups of four men. The one group that is always preeminent over all of the others is the one in which Peter is a part, consisting of Peter and his brother Andrew and James and his brother John. And Peter, of course, is the preeminent one in that four. And therein, of course, the preeminent spokesman for all of the apostles. So this is our first point, the author. Our second point follows at the second half of verse 1, and it is the audience. The audience. Look at the second half of verse 1 again with me. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen. Now, in this text, the first clause carries the weight of the meaning. In the New American Standard, it says uh, they actually separate who are chosen to the very end of the verse. You notice that it falls at the, at the end of the verse in our New American Standard Bibles. But in the Greek text, this is all part of the first clause. And if we were going to literally translate that clause, we might use a sentence something like, to the chosen sojourners of the dispersion. That would be a literal interpretation of how the text reads. To the chosen sojourners of the dispersion. And as mentioned, the designation of the chosen is at the end of verse 1, but not in the Greek text. This, this word chosen is also translated as the elect. It, it literally means the ones who are called out of. Yes, I know. It's right in your Bible, isn't it, Dave? <laughs> I saw that. I'm like, Dave's going to be smiling, and he is. Rightly so. Yes, it is the elect. That is what he's talking about. He's ta talking about the called out ones, those who are called to be separate from the world in which they live. That's you. That's me. We're called to be separate. We're called out. We're called not to live like the world. First John 2 in verses 15 and 16. Do not act like the world, for all that is in the world is not of the Father, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Don't be that. Don't be the world. Be called out. Be those who you are, chosen of God, the elect of God. I love, and I think one of the most powerful verses that speaks about that, and I realize this is all in our doctrinal statement, and we kind of all get it, but it is important, I think, that we refresh ourselves and remember the power of God's Word regarding this idea of election. And it's in John 15 and verse 16. John 15, 16 is kind of the consummate text that describes and really takes down the, the discussion of Arminianism versus Calvinism. That horrible C word, which is not horrible at all. John 15, 16. You did not choose me. You did not choose me. You didn't come to the Lord. You didn't walk the aisle. You didn't make a profession in the waters of baptism. You didn't make a prayer and choose me. But I chose you. God chose us. We were never desirous of knowing God. Now the events by which we may have come to the Lord, particularly for some of us that came later in life, may seem like, well, we made a choice. I, I decided to go to church with my wife that day. You know, I told her no for all those years. I finally went. Wasn't that my choice? 
I was the one who heard that sermon by that pastor and was struck by it. Wasn't it me who decided to go back the next week? Wasn't it me who on the second week sat there thinking, oh my goodness, I'm a mess and I got to change? No, it wasn't me. It was God's Spirit stirring in me. It was Him quickening my heart. Because you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. Our election is God's work in our life. So as we think of this phrase at the beginning of this verse, it is, it is truly a powerhouse to the chosen sojourners of the dispersion. The next word in the clause is sojourners, and some translation, this is exiles or strangers, or even in the New King James Version, I, I like the word pilgrims. Because it is those who are living in another place, those who are separate. The New American Standard has those who reside as aliens. You're not a part of it. You're not a part of where you are living. These people, they are seen as those that are completely outcast. It's very much a perfect illustration. In this day and time, would have been the Samaritans. They wanted nothing to do with them. You are those people who are not purebred Israelites as we are. You have commingled with those Assyrians and those Babylonians, and, and so you are the half-breed Samaritans. We have nothing to do with you. Well, this is what the Christians in this area were seen as. They were seen as aliens, those who were not a part of the world in which they were living. They were outcasts from that perspective. We further see that these described, lastly, as those who are scattered literally, of the dispersion. It, now, this is a term that when we think of it, we think of the Old Testament Jews in the exile. We think of those who the Lord allowed to be taken into captivity, and there weren't very many of those, by the way. You go back and you look at Ezekiel chapter 8, and Ezekiel talks about, and he does that little drama where, where he takes a, a, cuts all his hair off with a, with a sword, and, you know, that was totally illegal for the priest to cut his hair off. So he cuts his hair off, and, and he cuts his beard off, and he takes a third of that hair, and he burns it in fire. And he takes a third of it, and he throws it, and he slashes it with his sword in the air. And then he takes a third, and he blows it in the wind. And you would think, well, what's left? These were representative of those in Judah who would be taken captive. But then there's just a little bit that you see him take, and he tucks into the hem of his robe. And he rolls it in. Those are the remnants. So most died. But those that didn't, that went off to Babylon, or those that had previously been taken to Assyria in the ten northern tribes' captivity, those are all considered those that were of the dispersion. It's the same term here. So there is a, a Jewish flavor to it, but we want to be careful about that. We'll get to that in a moment. So these are God's called out and saved children who are living in a land not their own and scattered in various regions. Well, by the way, that perfectly describes the church today. That is exactly what the church is. Those who are aliens, those who are in a land that they seem foreign to. If you don't think that we seem foreign, you don't have to spend much time looking at our current events today, do you? 
it gets worse and worse every moment. They're attacking anything that they can find. Any, they're creating things to attack. Not to mention the things that we would hold dear as those of high moral and ethical value. Well, all right, already the idea of suffering in our introduction is evident, isn't it? As we ask the question, why? Why are they those who are exiles? The chosen ones who are sojourners of the dispersion. Why are they our aliens scattered or exiles? It's because of the suffering. This is the idea of this region-wide suffering that's gone on. Where? He tells us. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And if you look at your map, you'll find all of those are up in Turkey. These are areas that none of the other... Some will say, well, didn't Paul write a letter to the Galatians? Isn't that the same? You see that that when you look at the background to that letter, you'll find that Galatia was a very long region and that the southern tip of it came down just below Asia Minor. You remember when Paul wanted to go into Asia, the Holy Spirit prevented him from doing so. So all of these regions up in our modern-day Turkey were those that were not the regions that Paul was in. And they're also very broad in their spectrum. Not just the cities that are mentioned, but of course the entire continent of Asia. So it's a very wide region. Well, what would affect such a broad persecution in all this area? Well, there are three that come to mind, and there's only one that fits chronologically. And it's what we call the Neronian persecution or the persecution of Nero, Emperor Nero. It began in 64 AD and the beginning of the Neronian persecution came as a result of the martyrdom of the author of our morning messages, James the Lord's brother. He was martyred in early 64 AD by Nero, having been arrested and taken to Rome. And this is what they believe launched the Neronian persecution, which I have not seen, um, and I think there's some, not necessarily inaccuracies per the Bible, but definitely some stretches in the, the new movie, Out Paul. But it exemplifies some of the Neronian persecution. It exemplifies the burning of women and children in Nero's garden for the delight and, and lighting of, of the emperor's parties, which is absolutely unconscionable. But this is the persecution that was going on. The, the Neronian persecution occurred from 64 AD to Nero's death in 68 AD. So we're seeing when our letter was written. This letter that first Peter, of First Peter was written between 64 and 65 AD. So this letter was written right before 1st and 2nd Timothy. And this makes good sense to us in chronology and also what we see in the extra-biblical sources that after James was crucified, then Peter and then Paul. And this perfectly fits in the chronology that we know from the writing of 1st and 2nd Timothy. By the way, Hebrews writing at 66 or 67 AD would also perfectly fit in there with Paul as the potential author or definite author, depending on your perspective. So we see that, that uh, this is the persecution that's going on. And we further understand that the readers are not Jews, as that term diaspora might indicate, but Gentile Christians. 
And that comes to us by understanding that term aliens or exiles. That is a term that would be unusual to use with a Jew. It could, but it would more normally apply to Christians. But if you glance ahead into 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 with me, just look ahead at 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 say, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into your marvelous light. This verse could both go Jew or Gentile, although it does appear like that he's distinguishing them as something that the Israelites were already distinguished as. They were already to be a holy nation. But verse 10, I says it where it says, For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. Well, the Israelites were always a people, and they were always to be the people of God. So the recipients of our letter... This letter of suffering are the Gentiles in the region of Asia. We could also look at Acts 2 for these various regions, and we would see many of them delineated in that verse, or in that text, rather, where the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. So, verse 2 further describes the audience where it says, According to the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. This is a further descriptive of the audience, and these four phrases describe who the audience is. And he begins by saying that they are those who are according to the foreknowledge of God. Here is another. I mean, these two verses, beloved, are, are becoming critical components of Reformed theology. The foreknowledge of God. What does that word foreknowledge mean? It means he knew before. It doesn't mean that he looked down the corridor of time and he saw what was going to happen and then determined what to do as a result of it. It means that before any of that existed, God had a plan. And so it is critical for us to understand that these verses are talking to us about God's pre-planned program, not something he observed seeing down the halls of time. God is outside of time. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the last day. He knows the day that Christ will come and stand upon the earth. He knows the moment that the rapture will happen. He knows the moment that it will end and Christ will return. And the exact time that the thousand-year millennial will end and will enter into the eternal state. These are known dates. They are done in the mind of God. And this is his foreknowledge. The foreknowledge of God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. After that, we see the second component of these folks, and they are by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It is the work of God that is accomplishing all of our sanctification. Now, when we went through Hebrews, we saw that the sanctifying work of God was by God the Father, by God the Son, and here we have it by God the Spirit. All three members of the Trinity are participating in our sanctification. They are bringing about our progress towards eternity. And that is an incredible blessing for us and such a delight to understand 
that it is the Spirit of God that is living in us that is doing the sanctifying work for us. And we think, that's great, so I can just sit back and I can go on cruise control. That feels really good to me, that I don't have to worry about things. Oh, but then we have the next phrase. And here, side by side, is this beautiful picture of the call to obey Jesus Christ. It's God's work. It's man's work. We've been talking about this on and off for years. Some have got a huge problem with this. You know, all we're talking about is those that we, you know, we have to have this man-made sanctification. It's all up to us. No, it's not. It's up to the work of God. But it's not just up to God. It's a command to obey Christ. It's a command for us to look into his word and to look at these things and say, you have a responsibility to obedience. It's not cruise control. It's not just hanging out, oh, God's going to do it all. It is an active plan that we must be engaged in to obey Jesus Christ. First the Father, then the Spirit, now the Son, all of the Trinity involved in this beautiful proclamation of these who are chosen and who are sojourners in the diaspora, in the dispersion. And finally, we see that it is to not only obey Jesus Christ, but be sprinkled by his blood. To be cleansed. This is terminology that's consistent with the new covenant of Ezekiel 36, 25 and Jeremiah 31, 31. That God has instituted the new covenant. Jesus said at the Lord's table, which we'll celebrate, Lord willing, this Sunday together, that this cup is the new covenant that I have instituted in my blood. That is the cup that we celebrate. And this is the covenant by which God has brought us to himself as we have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Well, this is a, a beautiful picture of the audience. Our third point is the address. The author, the audience, and the address at the end of verse 2. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Here's Peter's greeting to this church, these who have these phenomenal characteristics, this already massive theological treatise, grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Well, that's what he's going to continue to explain to us as we move through the rest of the text, and it's going to be exciting as we dive in and continue to look at how we understand this introduction of suffering as it manifests itself throughout this great book and encourages our hearts to know that in the suffering that we are in, that we too need not be ashamed, but we need glory and rejoice and partake and see God's perfect hand in all of it.